Welcome to What's Not Priced In, a weekly investor podcast by Fattail Investment Research. In a world of confusion and rapid change, experts Kirill Prakopenka and Greg Canavan look behind the headlines to unveil the hidden opportunities within the Australian stock market. Now, let's dive in to today's episode. G'day everyone, welcome to another special edition of What's Not Priced In. Uh, this is a bonus edition where we're not talking about markets, but rather talking about net zero insanity, uh, which has gripped Australia uh, over the past few months. Uh, but it's becoming increasingly obvious that there are you know, quite a lot of issues related to our energy transition. Uh, last week, I spoke to Rob Parker, um, where we discussed uh, quite, a, quite a lot about uh, nuclear energy. Uh, this week, uh, I'm talking to Corey Bernardi, and we're talking about the energy transition from a political perspective. Now, you might be aware, Corey uh, used to be a senator for the coalition uh, and has spent uh, a number of years in and around parliament. And uh, as you'll see in this episode, he doesn't have uh, uh, many good words to say about the current crop of politicians uh, in Australia at the moment. So we discussed uh, all that and more uh, in the uh, upcoming episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you. Corey Bernardi, thank you very much for joining us today. The pleasure, Greg, always is. All right, so we're here to discuss the energy transition and what it means uh, for Australia. But before we do that, um, I thought it'd be a good idea if, to give viewers and listeners a bit of background uh, into yourself, uh, because we're going to be discussing this more from a political angle. Uh, and that's obviously your bread and butter or your former bread and butter. So maybe just uh, let's let's give a quick introduction to the, to the listeners about who you are uh, and, and what you've been up to. Sure. As you say, it's a former uh, passion of mine, I guess. I'm a recovering politician. I left about three years ago. I was part of the coalition and I tried very hard to wake them up to some of the issues that I thought they were overlooking or, or going along with. Um, you know, there was a mixed level of success with that. But when I left, I continued. I'd written for, you know, basically 14 years of my parliamentary service, a column every Wednesday. And I thought I still want to communicate with people. So I've turned that into a a subscriber website. We have a lot of free content there as well. It's called uh, confidentialdaily.com and uh, I write a daily column there for a bunch of subscribers and it's a really good community to be part of. Yeah, it's an excellent uh, service. I subscribe to it, have done for the past couple of years. Uh, really enjoy uh, the content. And I guess what I enjoy about it is it just gives uh, a different take on some of the events that we're seeing around the world. And, and one of the topics that you often talk about is this energy transition. And, and what I enjoy about it is that you really look at it from a, from a different perspective. So I'd like to dig into some of that stuff today, but maybe just to set the, um, set the scene. And, and a lot of the stuff that I talk about when we are discussing this, because we are an investment research uh, company, I'm, I'm looking at this from an economic point of view. And the way I see it is that this energy transition is going to be very costly for Australia. It's probably, I'm, I'm, I know my history reasonably well, and I think this is the first energy trans transition in history that's been driven by government mandate. Uh, and, and inevitably, that is going to, to drive up costs. Yet we are constantly told that wind and solar are the cheapest forms of energy, and this will drive down costs. Can you maybe just give us a bit of a I don't know if insight's the right word, but a bit of an explanation as to how the politics of this ha has has arisen, why why we are bludgeoned with the, the lower costs uh, mantra of renewables, yet we are seeing price rises constantly with our electricity bills. 
Yeah, that's a, it's a big question. Firstly, the transition to net zero. I mean, the Bank of America has suggested it's going to be $150 trillion globally if it can be done. Now, you put that into context of, uh, of the global economy, it's, it's incredible. Plus, you're going to have to have more mining. They don't think they've got all the rare earths and all the material that will go with it. They've talked about none of the disposal costs attached to the toxic elements of solar and wind turbines and so forth. In Australia, it's about $1 trillion to take this transition. Now, the big problem we've got is that, I'm not, I should start with this. One of the advantages that I think I have is that I understand polyspeak. I can decode, decode the phraseology, the weasel words and all the BS that they come out with that most people just sort of accept and it washes over. And how can I do that? I've been exposed to it for 14 years as a senator um, and I use some of it myself on, on occasion. But the reality is I think there's no leadership left anymore in political life. It used to be people would go there, they'd take their experience, uh, their lived experience, their business experience, their, their life experience, and they would apply that to a practical sense. Now what we've got is a bunch of failed mid-level managers who have reached you know, the peak of their career and gone, oh, heck, I might as well become a politician. I'll get paid more, I get some benefits and some perks along the way, and I can atone for an unhappy childhood or a failed career. They go in there maybe with the best of intentions, but the system grinds them down. And when you ask a lot of them, why do you want to be a politician? They go, because oh, I want to make a difference in people's lives. But they won't tell you what difference they want to make because they don't know themselves. And that means that if you haven't got this framework in which you view the world, you then will fall for anything that you're told by some authority. And whether that's a think tank or a bureaucrat or whether it's one of your superiors in the parliament from a, a positional point of view, you go along with it because you think that's the right thing to do. Now, if I can digress for just a second, you think about the pandemic for a moment, right? We went through an unprecedented incursion on civil liberties. Most people swallowed it and went along with it, right? There were a few rebels like me who said, no, we're not going to go down that path. But 99% of politicians went along with it. Even the ones who said they support freedom of speech, freedom of choice, you know, less government, uh, you know, more personal autonomy, they all went along with it. And they remain silent. When I tackle them on it now, they go, oh, I was doing some stuff behind the scenes. Well, that's crap. I'm, they're not doing anything. They might have mouthed a couple of you know, utterances. But if you're not prepared to step up into the public domain and say, this is garbage, this is not good for the country, well, you're not doing your job. And so take that, apply it into something like climate change, which is a global movement. It's been driven by Marxists. It's made phony, false prediction after false prediction. And you've got these bunch of midwits who sit there and go, oh, I know it's all crap, but I can't say anything about it. Um, and that's the conundrum we're in now. The Kool-Aid has permeated everything. And now it's a question of, oh, well, how can we minimise the damage whilst committing the damage in the first place? But it doesn't appear as if, and especially, I, I guess, you mentioned ideology, ideology before and this does seem like a, a lot of an ideology ideological debate in that the left side of politics believes in the climate catastrophe thinks that we need to do something thinks that the the um if anything the move to the renewable is is taking too long needs to be done even faster and there's no cost benefit analysis done done at all so so when you say that there's people in politics that understand this uh, it just seems like that there's no will 
to buck the system and they are just putting their head down and going along to getting to get along. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. And we'll come back to that in a second. But let me pick up on something. You, you know, the left side of politics believe there's a climate catastrophe. I'm not sure that's the case at all. I think it's a convenient method for most of them to exert control. I mean, there's no evidence of a climate catastrophe whatsoever. And any any credible person who's followed climate science or, or talked in terms of geological time spans will say what we're experiencing now is entirely normal and not unprecedented in the world. Now, you can't tell me that the people at the WEF and the, the, the United Nations and all the people who have been caught lying about these things and making false predictions, those who create these models, don't know that what they're talking about is absolute bunkum. Right? They, they, they can't believe their own garbage because they know that it's been wrong so many times. Now, that leads me to a, to a belief that this is a means to an end, and the end is about control of people's lives. Now, sure, there are some of the people in the world, like Greta Thunberg, who, you know, has been brought up in, in this cult-like environment to swallow whatever is peddled, and they will become very emotional about it. But in the end, I think it is a tool of control. And it's a way of arresting capitalism. It's a way of subsuming the middle class. And so what you've got is a bunch of elites and who can then influence the provision of services or the ability to travel or just like we saw in a pandemic or the availability of electricity. And then that gives them more influence over the people who are, you know, destined to accept whatever is dealt with to them from on high. It's old-fashioned Marxism as far as I'm concerned. But when you go back to it and you think we had the, what we call the climate battles in 2009, 2010, then it was only a half a dozen of us, you know, the Barnaby Joyce of the world, myself and a few others, who actually went into bat against the emissions trading scheme and, and the, the, the party room battles that we fought at the time, the abuse that we put up with from our own colleagues was incredible. And then, of course, when the coalition changed their policy on the back of that, all the ones that used to abuse us stood up and said, I always knew this was crap and we just had to do this. And, uh, and they then wanted to say they were behind it. Now, that some, that of those, some of those same people are now saying, oh, we should never have done that. You know, we've always been believed in the green thing. That is the politics, the, the weather vanes of political life that are, are running the country now. Well, that's what I was just going to ask. Was that abuse leveled because they thought you were wrong or they thought it was politically expedient to, to, to do that? I think there's a bit of both, to be honest. Uh, political expediency is the number one thing, right? And I'll tell you this story. A guy is no longer a member of parliament, so I won't tell you his name. It's not important. But we were having this debate in the party room, and the bloke who sat a couple of seats away from me in the party room stood up and he says, look, I don't know whether this is good or bad, but he, I said, he said, what I can tell you is that if you lose your seat, there's nothing on the outside of politics. No one's rushing to give you a job. So I don't give a shit about the national national interest. I only care about getting re-elected. So let's do what we need to do to get re-elected. And that's where my confidence in, in the, the political decision-making process basically evaporated. I thought, yeah, how many people are like that? So I think he was talking for a lot of people. So self-interest over national interest is obviously what's driving, driving things still. Yeah, it, it is. I mean, people want to keep their jobs. It's a well-paid job. They get to feel important. They get white cars picking them up and uh, lots of staff. And as I said, many of them, I think, have had very unhappy childhoods. And this is a way of saying, letting the world know how important they are. 
Um, I just want to sort of pick up a little bit more on on this uh, agenda driven uh, idea behind uh, the the climate climate emergency. A lot of people listening will probably think that's uh, you know going down the the path of conspiracy theory and um, you know really sort of an extravagant uh, excuse saying, well, look, you know, the, the, the science is settled because that's all we're told. All we're told is that the science is settled and anyone who d- don't, doesn't believe in it is a, is a denier and, and uh, doesn't believe the science and, and those sorts of things. But I think the important thing about what you're saying is w- once you look at this topic from a rational and common sense perspective and try to remove the emotion, some of these things do come to the surface and you start to realise that, hang on, there might be something a little bit more to this. And we've been told there's a climate catastrophe for the past 20 years. And if you bring out a lot of these claims of the catastrophists from 20 years ago, then by 2023, we would have been boiling by now, we would have been underwater, all, all these sorts of things. Yet they're never held to account for that. And people like yourself who are who are trying to put your hand up and say, hang on, look over here. But that just doesn't happen. So th- is this even more broader than than the political or the elites? I mean, how much are the media involved in in turning a blind eye to some of these claims? I think it's uh, pretty f- uh, widespread, to be honest. But let's let's distill it to what it is. It's a political motivation, and it was picked up by the left uh, many many years ago. And in fact, if you look at there's a video floating around now of Klaus Schwab, who's the head of the World Economic Forum boasting about being involved in climate change since 1973 or thereabouts. Now, this is the global warming catastrophist that says we've got to reset and, and, and uh, the entire world and how we go about our business to avoid global warming. Well, in 1973, the scientists were telling us there was global cooling and we were all going to freeze to death in this new ice age. And that's what Glass was camp- campaigning on. Yep. You know, so he's done it about face because he's decided that, oh, well, no, this is the argument we can have here. We were so wrong before. Uh, now, the media, you follow the money is generally what I would say. If governments or leftists are funding these causes, you will get research and advocacy research, as I call it, that will come up and support whatever notion you want. And that's why we've had people like Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and, and Joe Biden and a whole bunch of others, Al Gore, say we've got five years to save the planet. They've been saying that for 20 years, as you point out, um, every time. Greta Thunberg told us in June, I think, of this year, if we hadn't ceased using fossil fuels, it's all over. Uh, so you can't take these people seriously. But they do control the purse strings. You know, governments fund media outlets and media organisations. They know that uh, that complaints can drive them crazy. They know that licensing issues can uh, be made very difficult from government as well. And we also know the media broadly leans hard left as well. They might purport and say they don't and we're balanced and fair, but in the end, most of them are leftists and uh, particularly on national broadcasters right around the world. And so they continue to regurgitate this. And if you ever have the unfortunate time where you watch the ABC maybe in the morning, for example, you know, there's only five stories they ever run. It's about, you know, rainbow alliances. It's about, you know, um, the importance of Indigenous recognition or the voice or uh, it's climate change and you get a couple of others. But they're just the, the zeitgeist of what they're trying to push. And that's how most people are getting their information these days, unfortunately. You mentioned follow the money before, and I think whenever 
there's a, a complex topic uh, with um, you know lots of different aspects to it. The the easy way to try and work out what's going on is to follow the money. And with this uh, renewables um, movement, there's there's a huge amount of money involved. I mean, there's significant subsidies. There's uh, a lot of bureaucracies being formed in order to create a uh, a national and state-based plans for for all the the renewable zones that we are currently building for the transmission, all that sort of stuff. So there's a lot of people involved that are, uh, I guess, profiting from this movement. Do you have any sense of just how big uh, the, the the money trail is in in terms of the, this renewal transition? I'm not sure that anyone really does, Greg. I, I suspect it's in the uh, you know hundreds of billions of dollars, maybe more, could be trillions of dollars worldwide. Um, in here, there's a lot of snouts in the trough. That goes from the people who are manufacturing, right, which is mostly in China, using slave labour. Uh, they are making money out of it. So they have an interest in, uh, you know, fostering the, the alarmism that goes with it, even though, I have to say, the Chinese don't abide by the same requirements that we do. Then you go through uh, aspects of, of Europe and governments there, which have been centre-left governments broadly, are uh, funding and subsidising the installation of these sorts of things. Uh, that happens here as well in America. There is just a bottomless pit of cash. All the corporates, you go through the, the big investment funds like BlackRock, for example, are, are lecturing people about ESG compliance. And that includes, you know, your commitment to environmental stuff. You read through balance sheets. I know you do a lot of research about your investments, uh, Greg, and and you find that that it's not just bottom line profits anymore that matter to companies. If you're a listed entity, you've actually got to have, you know, some environmental, social, and governance uh, ticks in order to get the investments from the Black Rocks and the vanguards and the big investment funds. Uh, we know there's a lot of fraud that goes on in this space and greenwashing, but Ultimately, think about it like this. If net zero is $150 trillion of expenditure to get there by 2050, if it can be done, this is Bank of America saying it, they reckon there's a, there's a whole pile of people who say, I'd like a share of that, so let me get some of it. Because if that's going to happen, it's been pushed by government and everyone else, um, why not put your hand out and get some of it as well? Uh, and that's despite the evidence that uh, the countries that have moved towards a renewable economy uh, faster than what Australia has or, or prior to Australia, it, it's just not working. To what extent do you think the politicians here look at the uh, experience of, say, Germany, for example, California with their high high costs and, and push towards renewables, uh, even even Denmark, which is a you know an offshore leader in, in sorry a world leader in offshore wind, it's got some of the highest energy costs in Europe. I mean, and and you know we're talking about making Gippslander an offshore wind uh, precinct in Australia, to what extent are we actually looking at the evidence on the ground and saying uh, it's it's actually not working where they've already spent hundreds of billions of dollars? Uh, why are we trying it? I can only conclude that they, if they're looking at it, they've found ways to rationalise that this it's going to be different in this country. Uh, we've got more sun or we've got more land mass or we've got more wind, right? None of that matters, uh, Zach, in the end. Uh, but I can only conclude that if they've looked at it, they've gone, no, no, we can do it differently. And it's the classic 
oh, socialism wasn't done right in the first place. We'll, we'll just do it over here a little bit differently and we won't end up like Venezuela and Venezuela won't end up like you know, North Korea and North Korea won't end up like the old Soviet Union and so forth. It's just, it's, it's nonsensical. Um, and you can even point, say, at Finland, where the Finnish Greens have actually embraced nuclear power yep. and said, no, we've got, it's got to be part of the mix. If you want to have a, you know, a first world country with reliable and abundant power, nuclear is the only emissions free source that you've got. And in Australia, where we've got, I'll stand corrected on this, 25, 35, whatever percent of the uranium reserves in the world, we're not allowed to use it because of some stupid deal done with the Democrats back in uh, over the GST in the late 90s. And the coalition refused to to revisit that deal when they were in power. And now they're demanding, you know, we have nuclear energy. And you go, well, where were you for the 10 years there, my, my friends? Um, so it's head in the sand stuff. I think it's, it's crazy. Uh, and that's why I think politics is letting everyone down. Everyone's got to look after themselves. Speaking of nuclear, it is the most uh, uh, densest form of energy uh, that we've got. Uh, you can... Um, build a nuclear facility in a very small amount of land compared to, say, a wind farm or, or a solar farm, uh, it absolutely makes sense that it should be on the agenda given that it is an emissions-free form of form of very uh, productive energy. So do you, do you have you heard of anything within uh, the, the realm of politics that it is being put back on the table? I know the coalition are talking about it. I mean, how uh, serious are they and, and how much chance do you think uh, do they have of winning the, the public conversation? Because I know in 20 years of it being, what, over 20 years of it being uh, outlawed in Australia, there's a lot of fear about nuclear waste and no one, uh, it, I think it'll take a lot for a community to accept that a, uh, a nuclear power plant, whether it's a small module reactor or, or something larger, needs to be built. Is that a realistic aim for Australia or do you think that that uh, debate has 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 passed us? No, I think it's just um, actually finding its feet now, to be honest, uh, because not simply because of the coalition, that's one aspect of it, but because of the disaster that is our electricity network, the fact that we're not sure we can get through summers, the fact that, you know, they want to drive us towards electric cars and uh, force us to be more reliant on the grid is going to put increasing pressure on it, not withstanding the enormous cost implications. I mean, I said on Sky the other day that my electricity usage went up 39%, but my bill had gone up 400%, uh, and that's including solar panels on one of the properties that I had. So, you know, this is going to hit everyone's hip pocket, and they're going to go, what solutions do we have? Now, when you talk about the waste issue, let's remember the, the AUKUS agreement with getting nuclear subs which is endorsed by the Labor Party, has also said part of that commitment is we're going to have, a, have to have a, a high-level nuclear waste facility in order to, by 2050, I think, to in order to deal with some of the uh, waste products of those subs. The, the country hasn't bucked or batted, batted an eyelid at getting nuclear subs, and they're just nuclear reactors that go underwater. We've got a nuclear reactor, albeit a research plant, in Lucas Heights in the suburb of Sydney. I've been there. I've touched the, the the waste storage eggs. They're still warm, but they're just sitting in the backyard under a shed, basically. And no one's complaining about that. No one's saying, hey, this is a problem. Um, in places like Bordeaux in France, there's a nuclear waste repository. So I think there is an appetite for it. I think we've probably been conditioned for it a little bit with the nuclear subs. 
And I think communities will embrace it and uh, follow the money. If you said to a community, you know, we'll give you $100 million in royalties a year or whatever the figure may be, and those within three kilometres can have free electricity, I reckon everyone will put their hand up and say, I'll have one in my backyard, thanks. Absolutely. Um, well, I mean, the, the experience of Ontario and Canada uh, is a case in point. They have uh, closed down their coal plants and they've um, restarted and, and expanded their nuclear fleet. And their electricity costs are significantly lower uh, th- than Australia. So this this uh, constant refrain of we, we're not building le- nuclear because it's too expensive and it'll take too long, I think that will come under under question as well. You just mentioned your your power bill. You're in uh, South Australia. I thought that was the renewables capital of uh, Australia, mate. What's going on there? It, it is. Uh, both sides of politics turned it into a virtue to be blowing up coal-fired power stations and saying, look at these windmills. Uh, we had, in 2016, we had a five-day blackout in parts of South Australia. And you reckon it's like the Hunger Games after four or five days in a, a relatively small community where no one can get fuel or cash. Uh, you know, the freezers aren't working, the boo shops don't, can't serve you and the supermarkets are running bare. It is like the Hunger Games. Um, so without, you know, modern, reliable, dispatchable electricity that's affordable, the country will go to, to pot very, very quickly. And this is what concerns me about, if I can just segue into Dan Andrews, cancelling gas connections in Victoria, right? If you're reliant on a, an electricity grid and that grid is effectively controlled by smart meters and government policy, they can do whatever they like to limit your heating, your cooling. Can you recharge your electric car? Oh, no, I can't. It means you can't travel more widely. I mean, this, if you go down the rabbit hole, plays into everything about what we're told for the Great Reset, where governments are telling us what to do. You own nothing. You have no control over what you want to do. They want 15-minute cities. They don't want you, or they want to be able to control your travel. And if you want any really alarming stuff, there's, there's I posted something on my blog today, but um, you look at the social credit system in, in China. So electricity and supply that can play into all of those things. If you're a bad citizen, well, we might do something to you. And for those who say it's far-fetched in this country, I'd say have a look at the COVID response. We had a, a South Australia, that terrible marshmallow government here, they it locked people up effectively in their own homes and were checking them with a, a digital face ID app on their phones. Now, that's you just go, this is incredible. How, how do we accept this in any modern democratic nation? And yet people did. So... This stuff will come up on us very, very quickly unless we stop it. It's a good point. People, you, if you told people five years ago that was going to be the reality in, in 2020 or 2021, uh, they would have you know, uh, not accepted it. But I did read that uh, article uh, that you wrote this morning on the, the, the Chinese surveillance system, and it's very, very scary. So uh, final couple of questions. How do you think this will play out in the upcoming election? I mean, the, the Labor government just got voted in on their climate credentials and on their, uh, I guess, commitments to push towards net zero and, and all the, uh, the the various things that um, are going into that policy, 82% renewable energy by 2030. So the electorate basically uh, gave them a mandate for that. Uh, do you think they, they, they hold that mandate into the next election or do you think the worm will turn? I do think the worm is starting to turn, but it comes back to money. I mean, people can be indulgent in a whole range of different social aspects, 
and say, yes, this is a good idea. We all should be paying more tax, except me, of course, and so on. But the reality comes when it's your hip pocket, when you cannot pay your bills, you don't have time for that nonsense anymore. And you go, hang on, I want some relief here. Now, I think most people will see through the fact that the government has broken its promise on $275 worth of cheaper electricity. That hasn't happened. They're trying to make it more affordable by giving more handouts. That works for a little while, but there's got to be a point in time where, where the government actually delivers cheaper electricity, and there's no sign of that whatsoever. There's still you know, a trillion dollars worth of, of transmission lines and various other changes in order for them to meet their goals. That's going to take a long time. They're not going to be able to shut down coal. They're not going to be able to shut down gas entirely. And as it hurts people's hip pockets, they're going to go, hang on, this we've been sold a pipe dream here. Now, the big problem is the fact that the coalition has swallowed all of this bunkum as well. You know, they've, they've peddled that net zero by 2050 stuff. Their target for 2030 is slightly lower than, than the Labor parties. Uh, so where are they going to go? Nuclear is their only option, uh, but then they're admitting that there's this, this climate change dilemma and there's no evidence that there is a climate change dilemma except in the minds of irrational socialists. So the, uh, the, the Liberal Party has literally been torn apart by this climate uh, debate probably for the since 2007, I would almost say, when, when it started to become an ele- election issue. Uh, do you think the, the Liberal Party has the calibre of people in it in order to, to be a, a genuine opposition force at the next election, or, or do you think they've got many years of rebuilding to do, if that at all? Yeah, there is a chance that the you know, government will lose and the opposition will get there. They're the only credible alternative to form government, whether that be in coalition with some of the minor parties or not. But I do think there's a, a distinct lack of personnel who have the courage of their convictions in there, with some exceptions. Jared Rennick, of course, who's just lost his pre-selection um, in, in Victoria, is, is so across this stuff and yet has been you know, widely maligned for it. Alex Antic from South Australia, a senator uh, who's, I hope he gets his pre-selection back as well, is, is just at the forefront of this vanguard. And there are some others, right, in the National Party. But overwhelmingly, I think there is not the appetite for a big fight over it. Um, they used to win elections when they'd have a fight over it. Promising people cheaper electricity is an election-winning strategy but uh, they seem to be too concerned about what's happening in the teal seats or, or placating the inner city people who perhaps can afford these, uh, these enormous changes in electricity prices and the unreliability of it. But you go into regional areas and you say, how are you as a farmer going to run your tractor on a, on a battery? It's highly unlikely. How are we going to get our trucks running on batteries? How are we going to charge it? Uh, how are we going to maintain reliable power without you know, having to go down nuclear or having coal or gas. It can't be done. I think the the irony of all that is that these the inner city wealth and the the the, the property wealth that Australians have amassed over the past 20 years of a huge property bubble has been underwritten by exports of iron ore and coal yeah. and 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 LNG. And I don't think and this this comes back to I guess the economic literacy of a lot of a lot of the people in positions of power in in government just don't understand that economically we have underpinned our wealth on those 
on those exports. So you take those out of the equation, uh, and Australia is in a very, very different situation. So you combine that with higher energy costs, uh, and lower energy costs, I should point out, is the foundation for all wealth creation. Uh, higher energy costs are destroying wealth and destroy our standard of living. So I guess it's a question of how quickly it takes people to wake up to that fact. Uh, and hopefully conversations like this will, uh, you know, people can make their own mind up of whether they, you know, how they want to see this. But we are really just trying to bring people a different uh, perspective to what they're going to uh, read in the uh, in the mainstream media. So. Uh, thank you for bringing that today. And I'm going to leave or uh, finish with one final question. Uh, I know you had a former life uh, in, in finance. Uh, how are you thinking about managing your wealth in, in terms of this sort of longer term trajectory that Australia is going down? Does it sort of um, really play a part or is it just something sitting in the back of your mind about how you should uh, you know, manage portfolio down the track? It's fascinating. I do spend a lot of my time thinking about it and uh, because my, my belief now is we can't rely on politicians anymore. We can't rely on the system. I think it's uh, close to collapse. And so every individual needs to take measures to look after their freedom, their wealth and their families, right? That's, that's my mantra. And I, I live that every single day. So I look at a defensive positioning of it. I think we're in a, a sustained inflationary environment in some aspects. There's some deflationary environments in others. So you're in a stagflation type scenario. Uh, look, I like gold. I like Bitcoin, to be honest. I've still got stocks. I follow dividend stocks and I you know, subscribed to one of your um, your portfolios the other day, which I found very interesting. There's So there's a range of measures that is about diversification, but I never want to be in a position where I 100% rely on government to satisfy what I need. So if the stock market closed down tomorrow, it's not going to, but if it did, because government said, you you know, for whatever reason, there has to be an alternative source of funds or uh, transfer of wealth so I can purchase the things that I need to do. I'm quite genuine about that. I've precious metals, as I said, silver I've got in there as well. I have some property, but it's it's right across the spectrum. And the reason is I just do not want to be reliant on one single source of income because I think then you are trapped in in a world that others want to make for you. Absolutely. I think it's a good place to leave it. Corey Bernardi, thanks so much for joining us and uh, sharing your insights today. It's always a pleasure. Good on you, Greg. Thanks, mate. Thanks for joining What's Not Priced In, your weekly source of unique ideas in the Australian stock market. If you've enjoyed this episode, please show your support by following us on your chosen platform and turn those post notifications on so you don't miss a thing. And uh, stay tuned for the upcoming episodes as we delve into new topics, new trends and new stocks. Thanks for your support. Hope to see you next week.